musical linguistic objects. <laughs> Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, with me as my virtual host today are some fellow saloners who have either made a direct donation to the salon or who have purchased an audiobook version of my novel, The Genesis Generation. And I probably should mention that I'm not going to be able to read the names of anyone who buys a copy of that book on Kindle because uh, Amazon doesn't share that information with me. But you six kind souls who have bought a Kindle edition also are included in these thank yous, which today go out to Philip R., Martin H., Patrick B., Leo A., and Drew A. And I thank each and every one of you for your support. I really appreciate it. Now, uh, what kind of mood are you in today? Wouldn't it be nice if I could uh, just ask you that before I decided to play each week and then pick out something that would fit your mood? But since that really isn't very practical, I guess you're just going to have to put up with my own moods instead. And uh, what kind of mood am I in today, you ask? Well, I'm actually in the mood to hear one of those old Terrence McKenna tapes that I haven't previewed yet. But instead, I'm going to dip back into the Timothy Leary archive and play another of his talks, uh, primarily because news of the acquisition of the Leary archive by the New York City Public Library has been making the rounds lately and is in the news. As you know, uh, for the past several years here in the salon, we've been fortunate to be able to hear some of the audio recordings from that archive thanks to the efforts of Dennis Berry, who had been responsible for the physical safety of the collection, and uh, through Bruce Damer, who worked with Dennis and who sent me a disk drive containing everything from that archive that had been digitized so far. The one person who I've uh, been kind of remiss about thanking all along is Michael Horowitz, who is uh, actually the archivist that uh, collected and stored this material in the first place. And it is from a folder simply labeled Leary Audio slash Horowitz uh, that I got this tape. Now, I don't really think that Michael actually recorded every talk in that folder. Uh, Maybe he just digitized some of them. At least I don't want to say that he uh, did the recording on the talk we're about to hear uh, because (laughs) of what was taped over to make this recording. And I'm not sure of exactly when this recording was made either, but uh, from the content, my guess is that the talk was given sometime in the early 1980s in uh, Minneapolis or St. Paul. But getting back to the recording itself, you see, uh, during the Millbrook period in which Timothy set up a bunch of people in that big estate, while uh, he spent most of his time in Manhattan, I should add, Well, during that time, uh, one of the people who frequented the Millbrook estate was the late, great Charlie Parker, a jazz saxophonist of uh, tremendously great repute, and uh, also one of my own favorite musicians, I should add. But while he was at Millbrook, uh, at least so I'm told, there would be evenings when uh, Parker and a few of his friends would play for the residents of that little commune, and occasionally uh, recordings were made. Also, I'm told that uh, years later it wasn't uncommon to grab one of those old Millbrook tapes and uh, record over them without first listening to what was on it. And my guess is that this was one of those tapes. Because uh, for the first 27 minutes or so of this tape, I listened to some really great jazz. And uh, then, without any introduction, Timothy Leary began speaking. And uh, that's where I'm going to start today. But uh, after about 10 minutes, you're going to hear a little jump in the tape where... 
I think the recorder must have been paused for some unknown amount of time and then turned back on again, which uh, caused a little audio hiccup. Hopefully we didn't miss too much. And uh, now I guess I should just get on with it, and uh, here is what came immediately after the lovely Charlie Parker recording in the beginning of this tape. We watch television, and we read the news, and we scan Time and Newsweek magazine, and uh, one would think that insanity and stupidity are taking over the world, but actually there are enormous pockets of intelligence, goodwill, 21st century futuristic thinking, scientific paganism, you name it, this enormous number of wonderful intelligent people around the country, and it's nice for us to get together now and then, uh, as we are tonight, and have a round of applause for us, huh? <laughs> my own role in this, of course, is extremely amusing, I'm still trying to find out what my career is all about. It seems to have something to do with being a cheerleader for change. Uh, we don't believe in leaders or followers, do we? But there is a function for cheerleaders who uh, say rah, rah, rah for the future and give us uh, another cheer for uh, personal or species evolution, that sort of thing. Um, there's something very ironic that has happened to uh, an entity which has very little to do with me, namely the public image of someone called Timothy Leary. I'm associated in the minds of most people as somehow being an advocate for drugs which raise intelligence and make people feel good. Now, this is a paradoxical position to be in, particularly since I don't deserve the credit. You know. <laughs> I'm, a, you know, I'm just one of like 70 million people who in the last 20 years have discovered that DNA, divine wisdom, biological intelligence, egg wisdom, I don't, God, I don't care what name you want to give her, <coughs> has, a, has a range to um, you know, evolve us to a position where we have a brain, which has 40 billion cells. The computer people are now telling us that one single neuron is the equivalent of one of our large macro computers. So we're dealing with a, a network of uh, intelligence and uh, reality fabrication inside our heads that um, 40 billion macrocomputers all hooked up, ready to do something when we get smart enough to understand what we want it or him or her to do. So um, I've been in the position of about 70 million other people in the next 20 years of discovering, hey, you know, you can access the brain, you can activate it, you can learn to get in the driver's seat of it, you can learn to figure out how it operates and uh, do anything you want it to do. Um, I was extremely fortunate to come along in the 19, early 1960s when this was becoming a wave. It was obviously DNA, history, destiny, evolution decide now's the time for this species of domesticated primates to get smart. And um, this thing about the uh, image, oh, you thought I forgot. <laughs> Short-term memory loss is one of our occupational hazards, isn't it? <laughs> um, I was on a, a, a radio program about two days ago. I was hyping a debate, which I do with G. Gordon Liddy, which is kind of amusing. And uh, they have a special woman from Orange County named Grace that uh, really calls in and attacks everyone. So Grace got on the phone. She said, uh, 
That man should be killed. That man should be sent to jail for 40 years. That man has single-handedly caused American youth to take drugs and to ruin themselves. I have a 21-year-old boy whose life is ruined because of what that man did personally by himself. So the interviewer said, well, uh, what, what drugs does your son take? She said, marijuana and beer. So <laughs> I submit I'm in a very interesting historical position, don't you think so? <laughs> Historians of the 21st century want to blame some of the one on. So I've, I've been stuck with the image of being the drug advocate, and of course, just as well as any one of you. <laughs> I have a lot of uh, ideas which I'd like to share with you tonight. Um, uh, two uh, particularly hot ideas, hot in my psychology at the moment. Uh, one is the concept of the baby boom. There's a new, new book out called Great Expectations by Landon Y. Jones. Have any of you read it? It's an interesting book. It, it tells, us, tells us what we all know anyway. Uh, as follows that in the years 1946, in 1964, something happened in this country which was a, a genetic monstrosity. It was an evolutionary genetic miracle. It probably never happened before in any of our court history. Uh, the birth rate doubled. Now, birth rates don't double. Birth rates are like laws of gravity. They're easily predicted, like, you know, the law of levity just doesn't take over. And it's, we have to help it happen. But, uh, uh, there's simply no way that they could have expected the baby boomer double between the years 1946 and 1964. They actually expected that the, the uh, population of America would decline. Well, they knew that right after World War II, the soldier boys would come home and, uh, you know, grope and mope and boop around and make a few babies, but they thought it would continue to drop. But instead of that, 40 million more Americans were born between those um, years, 46 to 64, than were expected. 40 million Aliens suddenly descended that were on this tiny little country of ours. It's, it was a genetic, um, literally a genetic miracle. I personally take some guilty responsibility for this. Uh, uh, <laughs> after World War II, you know, when we all came home from World War II, there was this mania to make babies. It's called the, the uh, procreation ethic. When I was a graduate student and a young professor, you know, if you didn't have two or three babies, what's wrong with you? I mean, something impotent or something, everyone was having babies. It was mania that took place in the United States. So going along with this demographic uh, uh, miracle of doubling up a population, also we were treating our children differently. Uh, and how did these things develop? I mean, they're obviously genetic, they're obviously historical, they're obviously collective uh, hive consciousness messages to go out, but we decided that we were going to train our babies differently than any babies had been trained before. We were going to treat our children like equals. Can you imagine that? We were going to treat them like little human beings. We weren't going to lay upon them the economic fears, uh, the moral guilt the, uh, that you know, our parents had laid on us and their parents had laid on them, back to whenever they discovered the Judeo-Christian ethic, whatever you want to call that monstrosity, Parents' job has been to scare children and to every way intimidate them and indoctrinate them so that they wouldn't do what they wanted. So we decided, why? I was a total robot. My wife was too. We all were. Dr. Spock was saying, yeah, do it. But he was a robot too. We trained our little children, you know, hey, 
The world is here to please you. You can go anywhere you want. You can grow up anything you want. Uh, when they got to nursery school, we had to develop a number of nursery schools. Nursery schools concept didn't exist for the middle class, only in the upper class. When they got to first grade, double number of first grades. When they got to high school, well, you know what happened when they got to high school. We did another thing with our kids. They came along just at the time when what Alvin Toffler would call the third wave, the information society, uh, the consumer society developed. Our kids that were born after 1946 were trained that the universe is a commercial offering you what you want. I pan a toothpaste, Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola. The whole world was tap dancing over the television set to please, to entice, to seduce our kids to expect the best. Now, uh, when they got to high school and college, they wanted, you know, the best sex. They didn't want to go to war. They didn't want to be drafted. They wanted the best drugs. They wanted every, you know, the, they simply weren't going to put up with the nonsense that we put up with. Um, they were different because from the first time they crawled out of the cribs, and I'm talking about you, by the way, this room is filled with alien intelligences. They've taken over our planet, and nobody knows what to do with you. <laughs> and it's one of my functions as a cheerleader is to remind you who you are, and in every way encourage you to get what you want, which I assume is excellence. Even today, you know, an average working person is told that you have to have um, Calvin Klein or Gloria Vanderbilt's name on your ass. <laughs> Karl Marx never dreamed that would happen, right? <laughs> the average truck driver has Gucci shoes and a silver-plated Coke spoon, I mean, uh, so that um, uh, it happened, of course, after Hiroshima, and I'm sure that the fact that uh, uh, nuclear energy was on the... Nobody really wants to examine the implications of nuclear energy and uh, of nuclear war in the early 50s, late 60s. There's a lot of worry about it, and most of you people were exposed to that worry, and it's coming back again in a uh, more intelligent form now, but uh, uh, you have to face the fact that the people born between the ages of 46 and 64 are a mutant species. Um, the planet has never had to deal with people like you. You've been kind of laid back. Uh, we know what you did in the 60s. Uh, and I'm proud to say that intuitively, instinctively, genetically, uh, I'm a robot wound up too, I somehow sensed back in the 60s what was happening. So I've just been enjoying and riding the wave of watching what happens as you, the baby boom generation, crashes like an avalanche, like a tsunami wave, like an enormous uh, mass of 76 million people sweeping through American society. We're learning, of course, that the Darwinian theory of evolution, which is based upon natural selection, based upon blind chance, it's a pretty dumb theory of evolution, not the one that's going to lead us proudly with our shoulders and heads into the, into the 21st century. One of the ways evolution works is humor. Young forms look at the old forms and say, hell no, we won't go. The dino young dinosaurs look at old dinosaurs flogging around in the swamp like Jed Hoover or Ronald Reagan say, hell no, we won't go. So it's one of my functions to make fun of the adult species. Uh, I'm sure, and enlightened Minneapolis-St. Paul, I can take a brisk position and make fun of the number one sacred icon of American media, 
a man who's so revered, who's so upstanding that he can only be seen as a miracle of modern merchandising and marketing. But there's the person I want to make fun of at the moment. Have you ever noticed how much the Pope looks like Tom Landry? not here to make enemies, I don't want to offend anyone, but still, uh, and I like the Pope, I think he's the finest mind of the 12th century. Uh, he regularly gives those, uh, you know, marital counseling things every Wednesday, he tells people that uh, according to St. Paul and St. Augustine, you know, this is how you should uh, handle your domestic relationships. The Pope actually did say that it was a mortal sin for a husband to lust after his wife. It never occurred to St. Paul that the wife might want to lust after the husband, did it? But, um, but um, as part of this endemic, uh, and it really is an awesome epidemic of deliberate stupidity that is laid upon us by the media, by the press, by uh, the magazines, and so forth, um, they, uh, they simply do not raise any of the issues that will challenge our interest, our intelligence. Now, when the Pope got wounded, I was very, very sorry that the Pope was shot. I'm against violence. I think all violent people that like guns should be put in spaceships and in wonderful, comfortable, luxurious spaceships with non-ricochet corners and sent up to space. Or we should all get in luxurious spaceships and we get up in space and let them have the plan. So I'm certainly not here to, um, you know, to endorse uh, people shooting the Pope. But I was amazed and amused by our intelligent opinion leaders like Barbara, Barbara Cronkite, is that her name? Or, you know, Walter, Walters, or whatever. <laughs> What's gone wrong? What's gone wrong with human nature? The Pope. Who would want to shoot the Pope? Well, uh, for starters, uh, let's look at, uh, uh, yeah, uh, there are uh, 600 million um, people, uh, you know, fundamentalists, Arabs are like fundamentalist Christians. They actually believe that that book written several hundred or more years ago is the total word of God to, to a fundamentalist. I don't want to insult any liberal left-wing acid-dropping Arabs in the room. <laughs> <laughs> There's one, there's one, there's one, there's one. But for a fundamentalist, a Bible-thumping Arab or Christian, it's the same thing. They actually believe that the way to get to heaven, you know, is guaranteed to kill a Christian. Or as an added attraction, if you don't kill a Christian, if you die trying to kill a Christian, you go to heaven. Well, that, uh, that, um, um, I'll put the picture of another um, non-baby uh, boomer here. There's an interesting man. You want to cheer and clap? How about a round of applause for the person that represents the information era, the man who taught us about relativity and multiple reality. How about a round of applause for Albert Einstein, huh? <laughs> All right. The last time I was in Minneapolis in St. Paul, as a former Harvard scientist, I was really thrilled. It had never happened to any Harvard scientist before. It didn't happen to Buckminster Fuller or to uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson or to any of them. My opening act at Duffy's Nightclub was a male striptease thing. How about that? <laughs> what do we have tonight? A 
hip sophisticated cocktail party, right? <laughs> Am I making progress or what? <laughs> anyway, I put the, the, the sperm on the board to um, kind of make fun of uh, Charles Darwin and the Darwinian theory of evolution, which is really well worth making fun of. Um, the, uh, there's been a big uh, scene about uh, theories of evolution, you know, the creationists versus Darwinians. Uh, Any time that the press gives you a Super Bowl thing like that, you know, it's like, uh, it's like uh, Cincinnati Bengals versus the, uh, the uh, San Francisco 49ers, you know they're not telling the real truth. There's the thing about the uh, Arkansas ge genetics trial, I don't know if, I follow this very carefully because it's like my, uh, like my career. But the most intelligent things that were said at that trial were not the Civil Liberties Union proving that life is a Darwinian plot of four and a billion years of, of male competition leading to bigger and better rape. The most interesting thing said at that trial was by a man named um, Wikram Singh. He's a Hindu geneticist chemist. Does any of you know him? He wrote a book called Life Cloud with Hoyle, the astronomer. And he came over and he was on the side of the creationists. He said, well, I don't believe in this theory that, uh, you know, Jehovah made the world in four days, 4,000 years ago, but there is a creative intelligence that's designing evolution on this planet, and it's not a blind chance. He said, to think that in four billion years you could create uh, an incredibly intelligent species like ours with Monday Night Football and Howard Cosell in four and a half billion years is impossible by chance. He said that the Darwinian theory basically says that a tornado could fly through a junkyard and assemble a 747. That was a good headline. But the creationists lost. Uh, the reason they lost was because they were defending a theory of evolution uh, which is based upon the Judeo-Christian Bible. I have a lot of fun. I go on radio programs, television programs, and I say that the, um, that the Bible is such a sick comic book that I don't say, well, any parent of a child would allow your children to read such a book. You know, like, in the first, second, third, fourth chapters of the Bible, uh, Jehovah, the God of the Bible, who's a bad-tempered, mean, macho, mafia, condominium owner, he gets pissed off at some whim, and he's mad at the whole human race, and he snuffs the whole human race except for Noah, who is his resident manager or something. Noah. I mean, people believe that. Uh, well, anyway, uh, Jehovah, according to the Bible, said that... Um, to Adam, uh, well, it's the year 4000 BR, that's before Reagan. And uh, I'm going to send my only son, Ralph, down to blow the whole thing up and during the fourth budgetary planning session of the second Reagan administration. But meanwhile, I've got this Garden of Eden. And Adam is allowed to do whatever you want in it. Eve too. He says there are two food and drug regulations. There's this tree here. You're disallowed as a controlled substance. You're forbidden by law to in any way ingest. You know why? Because if you ingest this substance, you'll double your intelligence, see through good and evil, and become a god like me. Do you want to become a god like me? And Adam said, no, sir, I don't want to become a god like you. And he said, there's another tree over here. If you eat of this tree, this tree is the microgenetic immunology tree which will give you immortality and inoculation against death and you live forever and be God like me and you want that and Adam said no and of course you're well aware of the fact that the Judeo-Christian Bible is very down on women 
They lay all the blame on Eve. As soon as uh, Jehovah jumped into his squad car and back to headquarters, uh, Eve went over to the intelligence-raising vegetable and she sniffed it or ingested it. And as a good friend Adam, poor straight arrow Adam, she got him to eat thereof and uh, the first narcotics bust in history happens in the first page of Genesis now. Uh, uh, I know you've all heard this before, but I think it's one of my duties to repeat this story and repeat this story because the entire Christian religion is based upon original sin. I was taught about original sin. You were taught original sin. What's this original sin? Uh, the reason that the planet Earth is a terrible place. The reason that there's so much suffering down here is because we all fucked up. And what was the original fuck up? What was the original sin? Eating intelligence raising fruit in the Garden of Eden. So, uh, I, no wonder, no wonder they raised so much trouble about dope. <laughs> when I was a Harvard, you know, researcher, I thought, this is going to be a snap. There's simply no question that anyone who understands anything about how to use brain-activating drugs and is operating with a, a clear mind with no desire to screw other people's minds up, uh, who's willing to put in time and patience and sensitivity, can help anyone wash their brains. There's no longer any excuse for having a mind that you don't like or having a brain program that you're dissatisfied with. We know enough now, and we knew enough 20 years ago, how to wash brains. We thought it was the most simple thing in the world. Who wouldn't want to have this power? You know, uh, not only what was no big deal that we, uh, we discovered it, we looked back in the history books and found out that the first book of the Vedas, the first Hindu text, you know, about just yoga, self-development, individual development, was based upon Soma, which was some sort of a, of a brain-activating, brain-washing psychotropic. So we're part of the longest uh, tradition in history of people who stumbled on and continually rediscover the fact that the human brain can be changed and the way to do it is to use the chemicals. Uh, now, listen, it is not my fault. I don't think we're putting the opium receptors in the human nervous system. <laughs> the fact that you have a, a receptor in your brain and nervous system for acid is not my problem. I mean, <laughs> I really think it's time to uh, make serious fun of the Darwinian theory because it's a 19th century theory based upon the playing fields of Eaton philosophy of the British Empire at the peak of its kind of male macho uh, Victorian situation. Um, according to the current orthodox theories taught in our colleges, um, life on this planet was originated how? A bunch of sophisticated people in St. Paul, Minnesota sitting around on a Friday night? No. <laughs> and thinking about nice would be to make a world? No. It was all an accident. One night in the Precambrian slime, four and a half billion years ago, there were a bunch of methane molecules having a party with some ammonia molecules. They invited some hydrogen girls and oxygen boys. Basically, by lightning, they all began to copulate. And, uh, if it hadn't been for that catastrophe, we would be sitting here in the beach club. <laughs> Pretty good. Anyway, I'm happy to be here. Um, but this theory of accident, you know, is then chance. Uh, then the theory holds that we'd still be unicellular creatures uh, booping around in the 
Precambrian slime dividing uh, unicellularly, monosexually, except every thousand times we split, there was a copying error, a glitch, a boo-boo, a genetic mistake, and out of 10,000 of these, one would make a male bigger, stronger, bigger fangs, bigger claws, so that the male could go out and push the other males around and knock up poor round-heeled, dumb, passiveness egg. Now that's basically the theory of evolution that's been taught in our high schools uh, and biology centers for the last... Uh, the way the biologist, you know, Thomas Kuhn has talked about how you introduce a new concept into any society, the, the way the Darwinians will twist anything to prove that it's all natural selection, there couldn't possibly be any, any intelligence behind it. It's all blind chance. It's all just random mutation. They don't want to allow the possibility that there was any plantfulness, any vitalistic, uh, forward-looking uh, uh, intelligence. For example, the whole theory of natural selection. Now, how do we evolve a natural selection? That's a tautology. It means that uh, those that survive are the survivors, that those that were selected were selected. It's an absolute, talk about gibberish. I mean, the fact that Ralph died, came down and died for our sins makes about as much sense as to say that natural selection is the, the key to evolution today. Um, even the theory of how you and I were conceived is, uh, again, a tremendous insult to our sense of, of singularity and courage and imagination and confidence in living the future. The theory was that you and I were conceived one night when your father made love to your mother and introduced into a reproductive tract 400 million spermatozoa. Now I call your attention to that sleazy prosthetic term, reproductive tract. And so any woman in the room would accept that <laughs> shuffle off reproductive tract. You're like Hong Kong sweatshop workers. You know, kind of Darwinian theory, as soon as the foreign minsters got into these reproductive, or as we say today, the recreational tract of the female. and started the largest Mark Spitz swing race in history, 400 million spermatozoa during the Australian crawl, the first one to get to poor Miss, you know, jockstraps, get out of the way, the first one to get there, roll over, I'm going to knock you up. Now, is that, is that a theory of evolution that will, makes you want to move gloriously off the planet throughout the galaxy? No, what? I mean, come on, what, what low-level, narrow-minded, petty theories of evolution, jockstraps, swimmers, and so forth. Uh, we all know it's the egg that decides which sperm. Uh, the egg is, some say the egg is 50,000 times bigger than the sperm, so who's going to rake whom, right? <laughs> also, the egg makes the final cell division, that she actually decides which sperm to bring in, closes the door to the rest of them, she looks them over in her parlor, and if and when she decides she wants to undress her uh, chromosomes, only then does she make the final split. It's entirely decided by the egg. Now, I could give you a lot of uh, scientific explanation of that, but I'd rather give you if, yes, you want to say something? Randomness can be as God-given as directivity. Uh, you've got a real problem with, with the directivity stuff when you take the good old second law of thermodynamics. Oh. Oh, and I, uh, you're, not, you're not going to stand here and defend the second law of thermodynamics, are you? Are you? Okay, let's go for that. Is it all right if I take five minutes out to have a hammer and tongue thing on the second thought? Listen, we're going to repeal the second law of the thermodynamics right here. You ready? Do you know about the name Ilya Prigogine? How many of you in this room know about Prigogine? Prigogine won the Nobel Prize, I think it was in 1967, for chemistry. He has literally repealed the second law of thermodynamics, which was a 
Protestant ethic capitalistic trick. You know that the universe doesn't run down like a bank, you know, or it's, it's not like depletable oil supplies. The, the second law of thermodynamics works only in closed systems. And the theory of dissipative structures of Prigogine shows that, uh, sure, when closed systems collapse, they don't just collapse into uh, thermodynamic zeros. They reconstruct and they reconstruct at a higher level. It's called evolution. Oh, yeah. The second law of thermodynamics has been repealed. Isn't that wonderful? How about three cheers for that? <laughs> I've always hated the second law of thermodynamics. Entropy. You know, entropy. You know what they said? Intelligence was anti-entropy. Is so, you know, Intelligence is some kind of dumb thing you did to try to stop the inevitable. <laughs> well, here we are. On a Wednesday night arguing about thermodynamics. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> uh, let's hold that for a minute. You want to talk about life extension right now? Um, there are at least 10 scientists in the country today, reputable scientists, if you wire them or talk to them tomorrow, they'll tell you that the chances are 50-50 that within two and five to 10 years, we will uh, double the human lifespan. Now, if they double the human lifespan, particularly for those of you baby boomers, that means that you're going to be well alive in the middle of the 21st century. Can you imagine the scientific changes that are going to take place? There's a book uh, by uh, Alan, Alan Harrington called The Immortalist. How many of you read it? You know. Come on, this stuff is in the literature. It, it, this, you know, I'm not making this up. You have an acid trip here and just hallucinating in front of you? I mean, uh, read Omni magazine. <laughs> Pen, penthouses for the girls. But uh, um, no, there's an enormous literature now building up on, on life extensions. A big, uh, and it's going to happen. There, we're talking about that day. There are at least eight theories about how it's going to happen. Once you get a science that says there are eight ways we're going to do it, they're going to do it. Uh, dying is definitely a state of mind, I agree. We've had at least 3,000 years of Judeo-Christian ethics saying the purpose of life is death. And it's a bowl of tears and mush down here. The best thing you do is live quickly and get off. The faster you get off, the better. So uh, if there's anyone in this room that wants to die, I'm not going to take it away from you. I mean, really, do your thing. But you must also uh, accept the possibility that there are a lot of us that are going to live forever or die in the attempt. <laughs> Let me go on for a little while and then we'll uh, uh, come back to that, all right? I was telling you about uh, conception. I'd like to tell you the story of my own conception because it uh, flies headlong into the, um, the Darwinian theory of uh, how uh, we were all conceived. I've traced it back and I was conceived on January 17, 1920, which happens to be the first day that alcohol prohibition went into effect in the United States. <laughs> That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, do you know that the night that alcohol prohibition went into effect in the United States in places like St. Paul and in New York and so forth, at midnight, the streets were covered with um, drunken bodies and hotel lobbies were filled because people seriously believed that they'd never get another drink. <laughs> My father used to say to me, um, well, alcohol prohibition is terrible, but it's not as bad as no booze at all. <laughs> well, um, I remember the night I was conceived. Um, I found myself in a very comfortable place. Came around a corner. It's a very highly intelligent egg. She strobed me. She looked me over. Uh, she said... Uh, 
you and I could cause a lot of trouble down there. Slurp. The point I'm trying to make at this moment is that uh, we have been taught that evolution operates over hundreds and hundreds of millions of years and that we have nothing to do with it. That we can do nothing about it, therefore just lay back and uh, don't worry about it because it's out of our control. I consider any doctrine or philosophy or theory which encourages you to passivity, stupidity, laziness, and giving up to be um, a deliberate attempt to keep us stupid and inactive. The facts of the matter are that Lamarckianism is back, not at the level of morphology, but at the level of microgenetics, that the DNA can learn within our lifetime, we can change within our lifetime, and there's simply no limits to anyone in this room, if you keep your eyes and ears open and read the scientific literature, that you can evolve just many levels farther than you'd ever conceive possible in, when you were in junior high school. Uh, and, of course, the way it operates, if enough of us come to this conclusion, it's called swarming, the demographics of evolution, uh, we can all evolve as a species as well. It always comes down to individual choices of uh, what chemicals you're going to use to stimulate your evolution. Do you remember when we were all amoebas in the Precambrian swamp? I'm sure you've been there. That was a very successful form of life. The amoeba has a simple nervous system it's equipped to float and suck. Evolution from the unicellular stage took place when some of us began hanging around shallow pools and ingesting a dangerous drug called what? Calcium. The first drug that got us moving from the uh, unicellular state was calcium. Now calcium was attacked by the AMA, that's the Amoeba Medical Association, <laughs> as being a very dangerous drug. Right, yeah. Calcium. Calcium causes bones to grow, causes head tail asymmetries. Dangerous drug. The amoeba theologian said, um, if your children ingest calcium, they'll swim away from home, you'll never see them again. If God wanted amoebas to grow bones, she would not have made calcium illegal. Then we got we went through that stage and we began we got to the fish level. I got to the fish level, got to be pretty crowded. And so I began hanging around. Migration, migration, I was leading mutation. We migrated to the, um, we migrated to the shoreline and began ingesting an extremely dangerous drug called oxygen. Oxygen. The, the Fish Medical Association said, oxygen is lethal drug. And then our pharmacologist said, no man, not when you cut it with hydrogen <laughs> and nitrogen. <laughs> I'm going to stop and get some questions. Anyone ask any questions? Yes, sure. Now my question to you is, do you feel there are other techniques for obtaining the same type of awareness outside of taking external techniques? Uh, the question is, do I think there are other ways to increase your intelligence and to grow and evolve personally beyond drugs? Is that fair? Okay, let's talk about drugs. That's part of my karma that I have to talk about drugs. <laughs> the problem with drugs, and we're talking about brain change drugs, is this. Stupid people use drugs stupidly. Gross and vulgar people use drugs grossly and vulgarly. Intelligent people use drugs intelligently. 
of people who, learn, who want to grow and change and to devote all of their life to step-by-step step evolving, developing, learning, use drugs to evolve and grow. I mean, those people that are looking to knock themselves out and get fucked up and to escape are going to use drugs to do that. Uh, that, that seems to be the name. Now, all I can do as an evolutionary agent and cheerleader is to le- increase the level of people that will think intelligently and think about living a life of growth and development. That's why I'm urging everyone, rah, 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 for change. You can evolve, you can grow, you can develop. And if, if, if they get that message, they'll use drugs to, to uh, play that part. Now, when you talk about anyone using drugs, you say, what do you mean using drugs intelligently? See, today it's the brain that's the taboo organ. You know, the body taboo is over. Now, most intelligent Americans realize it's your body. No doctor can really help. You've got to learn how to do it yourself. Stay away from hospitals. Hospitals are warehouses for diseases, blah, blah, blah. We all know that. A um, hundred years ago, drug education said one thing, don't. I have personally read, and I'm sure you've heard about, books that were written by psychiatrists and the top establishment people. A hundred years ago, and they said, masturbation will put you right in the mental hospital. I can always tell a premarital sex person because they won't look you in the eye. Uh, premarital intercourse will lead straight to brain destruction. It'll break your chromosomes. It'll ruin your chance to be a good mother or father, blah, blah, blah. A hundred years ago, they were saying the same thing about sex as they're now saying about drugs in the brain because the brain is a taboo organ. Now, when I say that there's no intelligent education on how to use drugs, you know, there was a, a big campaign about two months ago in the Los Angeles Times that said, hey, we're going to have a big drug education program. We're going to wipe out all drug use in Los Angeles County. Ha ha. <laughs> when I say over radio or television, we've got to use drugs intelligently, do you know that that pisses people off? They don't want to hear me say in public we should learn how to use drugs intelligently because you're not supposed to use them at all. Then they say, well, what do you mean? How do you use drugs intelligently? Which I think is coming back to your question or part of your question, or is now our question, right? <laughs> well, you use a drug intelligently when you know exactly what effect it's going to have on you and you use it at the time and the place that it's going to add to your growth or your fun or your overall program of life uh, management and directorship. And you're not going to use a drug that in any way will uh, fuck up or slow down or throw obstacles and you're overall... But that assumes that you're an intelligent person who has some concept of planning or managing or directing the movie of your life. But within that context, uh, yeah, I think that drugs are by far, the intelligent use of drugs, by far the best way to learn how to brainwash yourself, get control of your consciousness, create the realities you want to inhabit, yeah. The thing about drugs, though, is that, and again, you're talking about drugs when? Drugs in 1966, drugs in 1972, 1980. The drugs we're using now are going to be very different. Like every week, I'm lucky enough to go into another city, and if I'm really lucky, I'm invited to a party where some chemist takes me aside and says, Hey, Timothy, we got a new brand X here. Have you tried that? It's twice as strong as LSD and lasts for 10 minutes. You want to try? <laughs> so, again, the whole concept of drugs now. For the last 20 years, uh, our great research institutes apparently have done nothing to give us something wrong with LSD. Give us a better drug. Something wrong with heroin that makes you addictive? Good. Get rid of the addiction. Give us drugs that will give us exactly the options, the choices, the management uh, decisions that will allow us to do what we want with our brains. So, yes, uh, beyond that, the more philosophic, 
biogenetic theory of drugs. I think that LSD, we said it's a key that opens up all the wonderful ballrooms in your mind. Well, that was a Newtonian concept. I now prefer to think of any drug as a computer code that punches, is punching you in, you know, it accesses circuits, areas, probes in your brain that other, you know, have you ever, are you into computers at all? Yeah. You know, if you work with computers, you get to that thing with a computer where you've got all that stuff in the computer, but you, can't, you keep pressing that and you say execute and it comes back syntax error. You know? You can't fucking access your own computer to get the stuff you want out. That's the story of the human brain, which is made up of 40 billion cells, each of which is the biggest computer. So when we talk about drugs and yes or no and so forth, we have to be very specific and individual about which drug, who you are, at your life right now, what you want to do with your life. Question. Yeah, um, there's a whole history of people that have achieved enlightenment, increased intelligence, awareness without chemicals. You know, there's people all throughout history that have kept up the balls themselves, not behaved in terms of drugs. Name one. I don't know if you're a person. Yeah. But, you know, I assume that... Buddha had his first enlightenment eating mushrooms under the Bodhi tree. Next question. <laughs> Well, the first uh, position that was presented here was that throughout human history, there have been many, many wise women and men who have achieved enlightenment, illumination, satori, bliss, and so forth, apparently without the use of drugs, although we're not sure, because we know that the um, people that run history uh, do everything in their power to uh, not tell us about the fact that drugs have been used in every society in the past. But let us grant, though, that, there, that it is possible to get as illuminated or enlightened uh, without drugs as with drugs. I think that's wonderful. And not, see, I'm, I'm always being put in the position of saying, I'm not trying to tell anyone here to use drugs. Drugs are an option. Drugs are a possibility. Drugs are the same thing like airplanes, same thing like, uh, you know, um, um, you can take the Concorde and you can go from Paris to New York in three hours. You can take a canoe and it'll take you six weeks. I don't care if you go at all. Uh, on the other hand, I find it interesting, though, that um, although 70 million Americans, uh, you know, use drugs now and then, uh, there are about 10 million who have used LSD. There are an enormous number of the smartest Americans I know that use drugs regularly. And somehow or other, there are very few people that will stand up in public and say, the intelligent use of drugs is an option for an intelligent American, and don't let anyone talk you out of it if you want to try it. You can get in fucking trouble saying that. And not only trouble, but just plain, you know. And I agree. I, I, mean, I never, none of us have ever said, we're going to bust you if you don't, take acid or we're going not to talk to you anymore if you... Uh, uh, and certainly society in every way has presented your point. The Reader's Digest does it every Monday. Uh, the, every magazine, timings, you name it. So the point you're bringing up to kind of discourage drug use is valid, as well taken, but it's certainly not new. And I love it when people put drugs down. I love it when people call up on radio shows and say, acid is terrible, acid, you know, cause that, and they're fine, because I think that you should be very aware, be very careful, be very cautious. You should know exactly what you're doing before you take drugs. So I, maybe you see, the terrible thing about it is we are all so different genetically, neurologically. You know, one martini turns some guy into an ape. You know, ten martinis and the average Irishman says, well, let's have a drink. You know, there is simply, uh, there's simply nothing but rampant individuality when it comes to uh, the human brain, the human nervous system, and it's accessing by drugs. Listen, let's take a 10-minute break. Everyone gets stri Yeah, answer down here. For 10 or 15 years, we've all been trying to improve the 
Question answered right now. Well, I'll do it. Shall I tell you? You got to give him intelligent uh, marks. He's higher than we are, right? <laughs> He's learned lesson number four when we got up four foot and climbed trees. He's free up there. He's got access to the bar. <laughs> and you've got our attention. Uh, in answer to your question, do you, you want a real jolt of genetic optimism? I mean, I'll give you a real mainline scientific uh, blast of optimism. You want, you want it? Okay. Evolution makes no mistakes. If you don't understand what evolution is doing at the moment, and you're upset and you think that it's going to boom and doom and so forth, it's because you don't understand the thrust, the trajectory, the purpose, the intelligent blueprint of evolution. Evolution wants to get smarter. Evolution, she wants us all to increase. Why? Well, wouldn't, wouldn't you do that if you were her? Uh, she wants us to move higher and faster. She wants us to get off the planet. Uh, in 1988, there's going to be a revolution in this country because at that time, the baby boom, an entirely new generation of mutants, will be between the ages of 24 and 42. 76 million Americans between the ages of 24 and 42. You've got the whole country in your hand. If you have this country in your hand, you've got the whole world in your hand. You haven't understood your strength yet. In the next few years, enough of us will be going around saying what I'm doing and, you know, shouting and screaming at you, get off your asses. Here we have 200 of the smartest minds in Minnesota. <laughs> How are we going to harness this energy in the next... Listen, well, let me have a little do a Gallup test. Well, suppose it's 1988 right now, and I say to you, listen, it's 1988, and a new election coming up. Uh, I want you to answer me yes or no. Now, aren't you bored with another election of dinosaur donkey Democrats and Republicans? Yes? Yes. <laughs> Don't you think that partisan animal politics, partisan shouting and screaming uh, is a dumb way to run a country? Yeah. yeah. Uh, don't you think that we should try to get the most intelligent women and men, hook them up with the best computers, poll everybody and find out logical scientific questions to harmonize and collaborate instead of that stupid, horrible, greedy Democrat-Republican politics? Yes. Yes. I mean, it's going to happen in 1988. I'll be back in 10 minutes. Well, I want you to know that every word I've spoken tonight is part of a carefully calibrated and computed uh, transmission. Uh, if it seemed to you that I've been rambling, it's because I have been moving from level to level, because I'm dealing with a room filled with people with 40 billion cell computers, and that uh, I know you're receiving at one level or another every one of these important survival signals. One of our strategies back in 1960s was that uh, things really led many of us to believe that uh, some sort of a jolt, a shock, a surprise was necessary to get people moving and thinking new ideas. We deliberately started uh, a very large psychological scientific experiment to see what would happen if we could somehow get two or three million Americans to start activating their brains to learn the concept of multiple reality. That's all we're talking about tonight, is the concept of multiple reality, that we've been trained 
uh, over the centuries to believe that there's one reality, the reality that you were born into. So the concept of multiple reality was a concept whose time had come in the 1960s. It goes back to Einstein with his theory of relativity and the multiplicity of positions and perceptions of the observer. It was connected with Heisenberg and Flatsy who said indeterminacy that um, you're always studying the experiment that you set up yourself. As I said to this young man just a minute ago, what has happened in science is since the 1960s, several million young Americans have learned how to change their brains, to open up their brains, uh, to get some access to the multiple reality potentialities of their own nervous systems. Now what has happened is that in every single science, a, a, a revolution has taken place, which all has to do with two concepts. One, multiple reality, and two, that everything is moving, evolving, and changing. And there's a third one too, that scientific reality is exactly what we define scientific reality to be. In other words, it all comes back to the individual with the nervous system deciding how to use your brain to study the world as you see it. Now, as I said before, the theory of entropy, which is second law of thermodynamics, was a very pessimistic notion. It said that the whole universe was wearing down like a clock, that God was a clockmaker, or God was a wonderful Mercedes-Benz mechanic. But even the German mechanics can't make a perfect machine so that the universe was wearing out. Uh, now this uh, is a classical Newtonian uh, mechanical theory. And as I pointed out, the theories of Ilya Prigogine, called dissociative, I'm sure some of you have heard about it. Uh, they're, they're demonstrating with statistics uh, and with the scientific experimental evidence that energy reconstitutes itself at a higher level, so instead of the universe wearing down, it's not. The universe is evolving to higher levels of intelligence, and as we evolve as intelligent people, we'll get to understand this better. Now, another law that has been uh, repealed in the last 15 or 20 years is a law which has totally trapped and made pessimistic human situation. It's the law of gravity. Now, the one thing, you know, Whatever goes up must come down. Bullshit. <laughs> um, or a sensible person is one that has their foot on the ground, right? Uh, well, our, our astronauts, uh, our space scientists, our space philosophers, people like Gerard O'Neill have repealed the law of gravity. Our species, through goodwill, harmonious cooperation, and the incredible application of scientific intelligence has taken our species off the planet. So we are no longer a planet-trapped species. The Russians have permanent space bases there, and people say to me, come on, Timothy, you're hallucinating. You know, it's not going to happen in our, our lifetime. It has already happened. The Russians have permanent bases there. It's a scandal. It's a disgrace that since the Nixon administration, the courage, the vigor, the vision of America, which is to move to the next frontier, to find new sources of energy, to find new sources of raw materials, to find new visions and hope, to establish new ecological niches where we can try new uh, social and psychological experiments of how we can live. That's been blocked by the pessimistic, menopausal, World War II, Protestant ethic, predestinarian, Calvinist notions that, you know, as Gordon Liddy would say, the world is a bad neighborhood. 
you know, arm yourself. Our country is run by men who are preaching fear, pessimism. Uh, there are simply two problems that are facing our species. And I say simple, there are two very simple problems. Problem number one is that there's a decreasing amount of energy, raw materials, space, land, and hope. Watch the real estate prices, you know, uh, watch the gas prices, it's all due to shortage, shortage, shortage. It's totally predictable because we are running out of energy and land on this planet. But the obvious solution to that, DNA solution always is migrate. The termites figured that out a hundred million years ago. A termite hive, when it's used up most of the energy there, they send out winged creatures. And the interesting thing about termites is they're basically neutral or sexless, but the winged creatures are beautiful, they're enormous, they fly high, they fly away from the old nest, they mate, and they start essentially a space colony to keep the thing going. And if the insects can do it, the domesticated primates like ourselves can do it. So the, the law of gravity has been repealed. I don't have to tell you that another byproduct of the consciousness revolution of the 1960s was the incredible uh, development of computer science. Computers are to the 80s what acid was to the 60s. Um, video games. The fact, you want to know a wonderful statistic? More money is spent by teenage kids on arcade video games per year. Between six and eight billion dollars is spent by kids on, on arcade space games that is spent by NASA. Now, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> At the one level, it proves how stupid those dinosaurs are, you know. And on the other hand, what are these eight million kids going to do when they, instead of quarters, they're, they're running our taxes? Now, um, I said there were two problems facing our species. One was a shortage of land, of raw materials, of energy, of hope, of vision, of new ideas, of new ecological niches. The other problem is this. There's an increasing number of pissed off, dissatisfied people. Now you put those two problems together and you see that you're going to get more Qaddafis, you're going to get more terrorists, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the answer to both of these problems is very simple. We have to move into space. And those of us that are involved in the space movement now, we, to tell you frankly, and I'm sure most of you in this room understand it, we think of people that don't understand that the next movement, the next uh, goal of our species is space, we think of people that don't understand as being like bleeding the flat earth or something. Uh, we have reached the escape velocity. I love that word, escape velocity. Uh, I spent almost four years in prison during the Nixon administration, and I'm rather proud of that. Uh, I was considered to be a very good very dangerous prisoner. When I was moved from prison to prison, they would always put me in a holding cell. They moved me from prison to prison all the time because they considered me a troublemaker, and I couldn't argue with that. Every time they'd move me into a new prison, they'd put me in what's called a holding cell, and they'd look over my folder. A prisoner's folder is called a jacket. On the cover of my jacket, in big red letters, were the words, Escape Risk. I'm very proud of that because I think we should all tattoo that on our foreheads. We should all be Escape Risk because... All of us in this room belong to, uh, we're the seed descendants of women and men in the past that were smart enough to leave the old world and to come over to this new frontier where there was more freedom, more opportunity for individuals, more opportunity for imagination, more opportunity for novelty, for experimentation, which is the key to the American tradition. So, um, uh, what, what 
I'm doing as I move around the country these days is I'm uh, cheerleading for science. The only way that's going to get us out of the particular situation we're in is the application of, of uh, human intelligence in the form of the scientific method. Now, I represent what I'm preaching and teaching and cheerleading for and telling jokes about and, uh, you know, making a fool of myself in public about is I'm pushing the concept of scientific humanism. A humanist is someone, who, number one, who believes, or you can call it scientific paganism. A humanist or a pagan is someone who believes in life. A humanist or a pagan is someone who believes in, uh, in being open-minded, who believes in diversity, plurality. Uh, a humanist is someone who believes in being a little goofy because life is goofy. And it, uh, the humanist is someone, or the opposite of a humanist, is someone who believes in the past, who believes it was all written down 2,000, 4,000 years ago by some uh, shepherd, neo-macho king god, and there's no reason to think uh, because it was all settled back in those days. Uh, the baby boom is going to take over. We're into what Toffler calls the third wave of the communication, information, intelligence of the keys now, instead of control. Competition is out, collaboration. Uh, the bumper sticker for the year is intelligence is the ultimate aphrodisiac. <laughs> or uh, aphrodisiac is the ultimate intelligence. Or <laughs> ultimate is the intelligent aphrodisiac. You can play it any way you want, because we're Einstein in here. Um, but uh, everything I try to do tonight, and I continue to do in my uh, r running around the country, is number one, optimism. We are being sold a bill of goods. We're being sold by fear because the jail Protestant people who believe in greed, the people that are running the country, the politicians and the religious leaders, the politicians say, vote for me and I'll get us bigger share of the pot than the poor jerks. Now, if we're Republicans, we want to take it from the poor. And if we're uh, poor people like you and I, we want to take it from the rich. But it's still dividing up a pot that's getting smaller and smaller. The religious people are more honest. They say, get on your knees and pray. <laughs> which, which, under the circumstances, working from the Bible is their manual of evolution. That's about all you can do. So, what I'm doing in every way possible is to make fun of uh, the orthodox established way, to encourage people to laugh at anyone that tries to see fear. It's always fear. I have many debates with G. Gordon Liddy, and he's preaching fear. He's saying, yeah, yes, boy, you know, the situation is. If you're a little old lady and you want to walk down the streets of any big American city at 3 o'clock in the morning, you're in trouble. But if you're a linebacker from the 49ers and you've got a pistol in one hand and an automatic weapon in the other, baby, and a baseball bat here, no one's going to fuck with you. Now that, I mean, that's the Reagan foreign policy. And, uh, uh, we're simply beyond that as a species. Uh, and the thing is that nobody's saying these things in public. It's only in little gatherings like this. You're not going to read what I'm saying. The scientists know about it. Uh, if you know how to read, you'll find it in Omni Magazine, Scientific American. That's a little conservative, isn't it? You'll find computer people seeing it. Uh, the kids see it. God, the average six or seven or eight-year-old kid, as we were saying last night, uh, can beat an adult at video games, knows more about computers. Uh, the hope is in evolution in young people. That's the, the, and, of course, people say to me, well, why is there such an anti-drug movement? Well, I'll tell you why it's an anti-drug movement. Because what drugs mean to me, and I don't care whether anyone takes drugs or not. Matter of fact, the fewer drugs you take, the more there are for us. So, I'm not, and I don't get any money by selling or getting people to take drugs. Now, I get in trouble by doing it. But, uh, uh, 
The, the point about drugs is why people, why the established powers don't like drugs. It's one thing that all the established powers, every religion is against drugs. There's one thing that the communists agree with the capitalists are, it's against drugs. When I was on the run in exile, I was in Algeria, which is socialist. The communists at one point asked me to come and teach them how to brainwash. Uh, the Swiss wanted me to come and so forth. But the one thing they said is, please don't talk about drugs to our young people. Because they know that if you know, one thing that drugs give you, personal options to change your own mind, a way of rewarding yourself, of teaching yourself, of activating yourself, of changing yourself. And there's one thing that the power holders do not want you to do as an individual is to change your own mind and to learn how to reward yourself uh, and reward the close group of friends that you want to evolve with personally. So I've tried to summarize. I know that it's been confusing tonight. When I talk to a group of people like this, there are 200 people with 200 different nervous systems, 200 different species, 200 different levels of evolution. There have been some 23rd people levitating up there. There's a bunch of unicellular amoebas floating and sucking over there. I mean, we've got every kind of brain in the world in this room. It's, this is one of the most diverse audiences I've ever been in front of. I, I honor you for that. Thank you for coming. And... Uh, Let's meet again in about a year, huh? Okay. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So, what do you think? Did Nixon get it right about Timothy Leary being the most dangerous man in America? I guess it depends upon your point of view, but... As silly as that sounds right now, I can assure you that a lot of people agreed with Nixon back then. And while it seems to me that Timothy's optimism about the baby boomer generation changing the direction of politics in the states, uh, well, that sure was a pipe dream, wasn't it? From where I sit, it uh, looks like the politicians uh, are still first and foremost politicians, which means that power is what they thrive on and they'll tell us any lie we want to hear as long as they can stay in power. So, while I may not be completely in tune with Dr. Leary about space migration and a couple of other things, I do agree with most of his uh, political comments, and my guess is that you probably do too. But before I get going off on politics, I'd rather take things in a more positive direction, and that is in the direction of Ireland, which is also the direction that Bruce Damer will be heading in as he hears this podcast somewhere over the Atlantic and on his way to Europe. So, uh, hi Bruce, how's the trip going? <laughs> now, the reason I'm mentioning Bruce's trip is that if you happen to live on or near the Emerald Isle, there'll be an opportunity to hear Bruce Damer further develop his theme of the Great Crescendo from our Salon Podcast number 259 and 260. His uh, talk will be part of the Spirit in the City events, which are a series of talks hosted by Shamanism Ireland, which you can find out more about on the web at shamanismireland.com. Now, Bruce's talk is going to be held on Thursday, July 14th, 2011, uh, at 7 p.m., and will be held at the Cultivate Center, 17 Andrews Street in Dublin. And uh, let me just read part of the announcement about this event. Beyond 2012, through the great crescendo to an emerald and azure civilization, with Bruce Damer and Galen Brand. Galen, by the way, is Bruce's wife, and uh, she'll be performing at that event as well as uh, participating with Bruce. And here's what the announcement says. A crescendo is when all instruments and voices increase in volume in the final moments of a great symphony. In this extraordinary period of history, 
humanity is caught up in its own great crescendo, with many voices rising in ever-increasing intensity. Some of these voices are discordant, despairing, extreme, and apocalyptic. Others announce great technological and scientific discoveries, and yet others sing out in hope and exuberant creativity. The civilization we end up with, beyond the climactic moments of the great crescendo, is going to be characterized by the tone set by the strongest and most moving voices. The year 2012 has drawn forth many of these voices and is described by some in apocalyptic terms, but by others as a powerful year of transcendence toward new beginnings. The late Terence McKenna was a leading advocate of a 2012 apocalyptic singularity, and in the 1990s he and Bruce Dahmer engaged in explorations and friendly debate on these questions. Both Bruce and Terence agreed that the future will be stranger than we can suppose. But Bruce has since developed a forward-looking vision sourced in the sweep of the evolution of the cosmos of where life and humanity could be headed toward an emerald and azure civilization. And uh, yes, uh, Bruce has promised to record that talk for us to hear in the salon later this year. But if you live in or near Dublin, I hope that you'll be able to stop by and meet Bruce and Galen and maybe even take them out for a pint of Guinness at Grogan's afterwards. Uh, that being my favorite pub in Dublin. And did I happen to mention that I hold dual American and Irish citizenship? One of my most precious possessions is my EU passport with that little golden harp on it. There have uh, definitely been times when I thought of it as my get-out-of-jail-free card, if you uh, catch the reference. Well, I'm starting to ramble now, and so I'd better close today's podcast by again reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just click the uh, Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And uh, if you're interested in some of the stories that may or may not have led us to where we are sharing this moment together, you can read a few of them in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available in Kindle and other ebook formats, as well as a pay-what-you-can audiobook read by me. And you can find out all about that at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.